Well, welcome to Foothills. I'm digging those message bumps more and more. They, they just get so good at it. Have you ever started uh, something with so much promise? Have you ever like thought, this is going to be a really great thing for me? Maybe it's a new job. Maybe you meet somebody new and all the red flags go away, you know, or, or maybe uh, it's the birth of a child or you move somewhere and you think, boy, it's going to be such a great thing. And then it just slides into the ditch and blows up in your face. Has that ever happened to you? Now, when you're 19, you might think, oh, no, man, life is so much fun. Well, do adulting for a little bit, and before you know it, you'll have that experience, all right? So this whole series is about how do you stay positive, hopeful? How do you maintain joy? How do you have uh, a good outlook on life, even in the midst of the storms of life that are going to come your way and hit you at some point? And it's all about value. If I could boil it all down to one thing, it's all about value. And that is, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have value and that is something critically important to help you deal with the storms of life? Because oftentimes when storms hit us, we have a sense that you know, we're out of control. We don't have any value. We, we don't have any power or any capacity to influence outcome. And that's very unnerving. And our society has become uh, masters at uh, feeling a lack of control in the midst of turmoil. So even though we live in the most affluent, wealthy society that's ever existed in the history of the world, that's provable, is that we feel more unnerved and upset and divided and isolated than ever before. Why? Because people no longer feel their lives are valuable, that they don't have value. And what has happened is they feel that way because even in the midst of the affluence, we've lost something and we've lost that which brings life value. It's the lack of a deep-seated value that is the cause of most of our problems that we face each and every day. And we get that because our society has lost the power and the glory of God. It is the power and the glory of God that gives your life meaning. And when it gives your life meaning, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your life has value. So the storms are increasing. They're not getting less. And so, hi, Jesse, how are you today? This is my right-hand man, Jesse. If you've never met Jesse, he's my bud. He helps me do everything. Look, staying hopeful, optimistic, cheerful, filled with joy seems to be getting more and more difficult. I would go as far as say it's impossible without value in your life. Because just imagine the disciples for a moment. Over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the glory and the power of God and how it brings value to our lives and how it gives us perspective. Just think for a second of the disciples and the storm that they were hit with. Uh, today's Palm Sunday, okay? And what you need to realize is when you read the Bible a lot, when you read the New Testament a lot, particularly the biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get this really weird thing is that the vast majority of what's in there happens the last week of his life. In the book of Matthew, 20% of the book is dedicated to the last seven days of the life of Jesus. I mean, that's one-fifth of the entire book, just on seven 
days. If you read Mark, it goes up 30% of the book is dedicated to the last seven days of the life of Jesus. If you read Luke, it's 17%. And the gospel, according to John, dedicates 45% of the book to the last week in the life of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when you think about it, this thing that we celebrate uh, is a big deal in the New Testament. And so it, the, the writers focused on it. And just think what happened in the course of this week. They started off with, man, things are awesome. They're, they march into Jerusalem. You know, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. And what happens? The throngs, the multitudes of people come out and they're throwing down these palm fronds, right? And they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna. They're singing the song of victory and kings. And it's just, man, it's unbelievably cool. And by Thursday night, uh, he's betrayed and arrested. So it starts off like the best vacation ever, you know? I mean, you go down to Bali or you go down somewhere to Cabo or something and you get there and the sun's out, you know, you start your vacation Sunday night and Tuesday morning a hurricane hits. It's like that wasn't in the plan. And so the disciples in the same way are experiencing this and they start with so much promise and in a very short time it just goes off the rails. They're hit with a storm that they can't imagine. And so as a church, since we know how it ends, we always celebrate every year the significance of his death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason we do it is because what we celebrate is what we honor. And what we honor is what we value. And what we're saying is, this is where our value comes from. Now, it's, since there's so much in the New Testament biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on this week, there's so many different things to read. I thought it'd be kind of interesting to go and look at how the disciples first started to perceive Jesus in a manifestation of his power and then the significance of this. It's in Mark chapter 4. It begins with verses 35 all the way through 41. And I just want to read the story to you. It's really pretty short. It's not very long. But this is the first time where they see the, just the massive power of Jesus, okay? So I'm going to read this, and then we're going to talk about it real quick, okay? Verse 35. Now that day came, or that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, meaning he didn't change his clothes, in the boat. And there were also other boats with them. So there's other boats there. A furious squall came up, meaning it was, it was immediate. The waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So these are experienced fishermen that have been out on this lake, uh, the Sea of Galilee, many, many times. But this thing was so intense, right? They were probably out in the middle of the lake and they're thinking, this is the one time when you don't want this to happen, it happens. And so they're afraid, right? Jesus was in the stern, all right, the back of the boat, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? So he got up and he rebukes the wind and he says to, says to the waves, quiet, be still. 
Now, if you go and you read the original Greek, this, the flavor of this is more along the lines of the things that you, don't, you tell your kids are not allowed to say at home, and that is, Jesus basically sits up and says, shut up. And then he says, shut up again. So it's very quick. And immediately the wind dies down and the water was completely calm. Kind of like glass. Then he turns to his disciples. He says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now, this is all about the power and the glory of Jesus. And why is it significant? One of the guys that I listen to a lot or read a lot of is uh, Tim Keller. He's on my list of authors of all these people thing. And in this particular passage, he does something. He, he says it's really unique. He goes, there's three manifestations of power. So I'm going to use his terminology for it because it's really good. But I, I kind of do something, uh, go in a different direction. But I like his terminology. And the terminology that he uses, he goes, the first thing you have to understand what this little story articulates. It's only 150 words long. It's very short. It articulates the reality of the power of Jesus Christ. You see, in your own life, nothing really makes any real difference if you don't have a real life influence from the power of God. Nothing you do really ultimately makes any difference. And this is a real life situation. This is a real event that you can look back on and you can say, wow, this is something that happened and it was dramatic. You see, today we are constantly bombarded with, I call, you know, fake ideas, fake news, fake narratives, fake stories, do this, try this, and all your fill in the blank problems or issues will go away. And this is why a lot of adults are so cynic. Aren't we kind of cynical? You know, it's like someone, you know, on TV says, Hey, you can double your money, you know, and your kids go, I want to try this. And you go, the best way to double your money is take it out of your pocket, fold it over and put it back. <laughs> right. We're, we're, as adults, you know, we're kind of cynical, right? You know, when someone comes on and says, Hey, we're going to fix this thing. You can do this. Just try this and try these tests. We're kind of like, yeah, been there, done that. Doesn't work. But what happens when you're confronted with something that is real, that actually happened, something that took place? In a world of, we, we live in a postmodern deconstructionist world where we can criticize and pull apart and deconstruct anything. What do you do when something is real? What do you, how do you manage that? And how do we know that this is real? Well, one of the things that's so amazing about this story is all the unnecessary details in it. It's super short, but there's unnecessary details. You go, well, that's a big deal. Well, here's why it's a big deal. During this period of time in history, there was really only one kind of literature that was being written, and it was a Greek-influenced Roman literature, and it's called uh, mythical fiction. Uh, Hercules is a perfect example. Hercules never existed. But there's all these stories about Hercules, right? And when you read the legends and the stories in ancient Rome about Hercules, they were mythical fiction. In other words, they always built him up as this glorious, handsome, wonderful uh, hero that could go in and always achieve the goal. And every 
letter. They were written, you know, very poetically with a certain pentameter to advance the story or the myth. But what's so interesting is Mark, which is the shortest gospel of them all, you scholars go back and they read this and you go, what's really interesting is that there's all these unnecessary details in it. And they say, the reason why is because what Mark is doing is he is recording the eyewitness testimony of somebody who was there. Like somebody who was, they're not writing mythical fiction. They're actually sitting there saying, well, this is what I saw and what happened. How do you know that? Well, first and foremost, look at what he says. He says, uh, it was in the evening. Well, what difference does it make if it's in the evening or not? He goes on to say, uh, they uh, got in the boat to go and he didn't change clothes. You'll never read a story about Hercules, what tunic he was wearing. But that's what they're saying right here. It's really interesting. Notice where he says, there were also other boats with them. When throughout the rest of the story do you ever read or hear about the other boats? You don't. See, it's an unnecessary fact, but it was included. He goes on to say over and over again all these little unnecessary details. He was in the stern of the boat sleeping on a cushion. What, what, what do you know? Oh, Jesus was in his barca lounger on the back. What, what difference does it make if it has a cushion or not, right? See, there's all these little details that give you this flavor that, oh, you're getting a real-life witness account of this situation, this event. It's not fiction. This is the power of the truth revealed in the Scriptures. And we've gotten so good in our society at discounting real things that we have discounted everything that brings our life value. And the most important thing that brings our life value is that there is a God and you're not him. You see, we've gotten really good in our society of healing the physical body, but we have forgotten how the soul is healed. We don't know. So our society now is losing its sense of humanity, its sense of value. You cannot experience any value in your life until you know what gives your life value. You cannot experience any value in your life until you know what gives your life value. And the ideologies of this world and the ideologies in which you are inculcated with from the day you start going to school are not enough. We are filled with things like scientific materialism, secularism, humanism, atheism. We are bombarded in our public educational system today with uh, social theory and critical race theory and all these kinds of things. And there are people out there saying, no, this doesn't exist. It does. It is everywhere. So much of the division in our society today comes from the philosophical construct of Marxism over and over. All this class stuff and all these ideologies that are pitting people against each other. And in the midst of it, you have storms that come into your life and none of these ideologies have any answer for how to get through it or how to survive it. Why? Because there's no power in them. There's no power. They only bring destruction. This is story is the reality that Jesus has power. It's a real event. And when you look at him, you can say, maybe, just maybe he has the answer. The, the other manifestation of power here is it shows his magnitude, okay? 
So the storm comes up really quick. They call it a squall. I mean, he comes up out of the middle of nowhere. Have you ever been to the Sea of Galilee? Um, the first thing that is really odd when you get there is, you know, I grew up on watching shows about the Middle East, and I thought it was this barren desert, you know, of, you know, because I always saw Jesus in the wilderness, you know, and those old cheap 70 movies and stuff. And, and so that's what I always thought. But you get there, and the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains, right? It's all these mountains. And then at the southern end, at the headwaters of the Jordan River, is this really deep canyon. It's a, a big cleft. And what's fascinating is, uh, Pastor Harv talked about this a little bit, is that this whole thing uh, creates these storms, these squalls, really quick. It's very similar to the Santa Ana winds in Southern California. They come up that, you know, off the ocean, the, the warm air, warm air hits a dry, hot air, or the cool air, and they clash, and it just goes raging through there. It makes these huge waves. And what's fascinating to me is Jesus sits up and says, shut up. You know what's interesting? He rebukes two things. He rebukes the wind. The wind immediately stops. But he also rebukes the waves. Now, if you're a water guy or you're a boat person, you're out on the wave, what you'll notice is that the wind can calm down, but what happens to the water even when you're on a lake? It keeps going like this. It takes a long time. I think that's significant because if you said he just rebuked the wind and the waves kept going, then people would say, well, that was just a coincidence, you know? The wind came up and then the wind left. But it didn't. It was like the water was like glass immediately. You know what else is interesting about it? When he rebuked it and it stopped, there was no fasting. There was no prayer. Jesus didn't stand on the back of the boat like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments and raise his hands up and say, Lord! There's no conjuring. There was no nothing. What that says to me is that Jesus got up and he says, shut up. And it was done. The power over nature that he exhibited in that moment was just a minuscule in his pinky. And, and th so there was no war going on. He wasn't arm wrestling with any demons over the region. It was absolute power and authority. It says that in the kingdom of God, there is no match for Jesus. There's no sparring partner. There's no, there's no struggle. We're involved in a spiritual battle, but Jesus isn't. Because his death and resurrection has given him all authority. It has given him all power. And that leads us to the third thing that this story tells us, is it's the divinity of his power. And I think this is really the most important. It, under, it helps us understand the glory of God. Now, if you read the Old Testament, uh, you, you start to realize that storms, whenever they talk about them in the Old Testament and battles and various things, is that they, they have multiple uh, layers of meaning. You know, first is the actual storm itself. And you know what that's like when a storm comes. It is, man, in the midst of Mother Nature. I lived for... In Kansas, before we moved here, a long time ago, 28 years ago or so, and we lived in a part of Kansas that was known as Tornado Alley, right? And what's really interesting is there in Wichita, you know, uh, you always know they got these big storms coming, and they have air raid sirens, like in World War II, that go off whenever there's a storm. 
you know? And I don't know why, but it's always like at 10 o'clock at night when you want to go to bed or something, you know? I mean, it's just so annoying that way. But these things go off, and in the house that uh, my wife and I lived in, we were right next to an elementary school, and so there was one right there um, on the elementary school. They're all over the city. What's interesting is they fire up. There are these big, giant air horns, you know? They go, and then they rotate real slow. So it comes up, you know, so it, it comes when it's, when it's fa- it starts to face your house, it goes, you know, it gives you that Doppler effect, that wave and you're going, oh man, the storm. So you're getting up and you're trying to follow it. And, you know, you learn about the hook echo of a storm front. You learn all this weather stuff because you're finding out where the tornado is going to hit, you know? Uh, I was in California back in the 80s, right? And I was in Pasadena looking at a seminary. And one morning I thought I overslept. Someone was shaking my bed. And I realized nobody's shaking my bed. Why am I rocking? We were having a earthquake, right? If you're in Florida or on the coast, particularly in the, or in the Florida region or, or down around what is that, Louisiana, uh, Mississippi. You think about what happened in New Orleans a number of years ago, the Texas coast. You get hit by a hurricane, and what does it do? There's nothing more unnerving than being in the grasp of Mother Nature. You feel really vulnerable when the earth is shaken or the tornado is ripping houses apart with surgical precision or there's a storm surge that comes through and just floods everything, there's nothing you can do about it. It is the greatest feeling of vulnerability that you ever could have in the midst of these powerful, powerful storms. But in the Old Testament, the storms not only meant that, it also meant something deeper. It became a meaning for life, that, that we suffer, that sometimes we're persecuted, that bad things happen to us. And when that happens, we feel weakness and vulnerability. And these things are a reminder that we are not in control. No matter how much money we make, no matter how many plans we set in motion, no matter how many ways we try to organize and protect ourselves in the end, we really have almost no control at all. And when a storm of life hits you and you feel weak or you feel vulnerable or you have no idea how you're going to deal with it. It's totally out of left field. Your plan has gone completely off the rails. You don't know how you're going to deal with it. When you hear those words, the first question that most people ask is, why, God, is this happening to me? And notice that that's exactly what the disciples said. When the disciples woke up Jesus, did they say, Hey, Jesus, would you get up and take care of this? You know, it's interrupting our coffee. Did he say that? No. What did they say? Did they say, hey, Jesus, you need to exercise authority over the storm? No. Notice the phrase they use. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? The implication is clear. This is happening to us, God, because you don't care. 
If you cared, then this wouldn't be happening in our lives. And this is the question I think that every believer in God asks when things ultimately go wrong. And that is, why is this happening to me? Because if God is in control, if he supposedly loves me, then this should never happen to me. You know, if you go to university, if you are in high school right now, or you're going to be going to university in the fall, this is the number one thing you will hear on the college campus to try to discredit God and say, argue that he doesn't exist. And that is, well, if God's so great and God's so loving, why do all of these bad things happen to people? Why is there so much evil in the world? You know, now, you can think a little deeper on that and come up with a real quick answer. And the first one is this, and that is, so you're using God because only God can define whether things are good or bad because if there is no God, there's no objective morals or duties. There, are no, there is no right and wrong without an absolute objective authority. It's just my preference. So you're using that to discredit God? I, I don't understand that. But there's a lot of other arguments that are easily showing the falsehood of this. But the reason why it's effective is because it strikes to that sense of fear and vulnerability that we have in the midst of difficult times. Okay? Notice what Jesus says in, the, in response to them. He says, why are you so afraid? He goes, why are you afraid? So they were afraid. And then he says, do you still have no faith? What's the answer to why bad things are happening or why storms hit you or thing, your plans go off the rails? He goes, what we see is there is a comparison between fear and faith. It is one of the other. And his point is super clear, is that if you don't have faith, you will have fear. And your fear is based on a lack of faith in the right thing. See, your faith is in, I don't want any troubles in my life. And Jesus is saying, that faith won't get you anywhere because there's always storms in life. He goes, your faith should be in me. And what's really fascinating is notice what happens. The disciples were afraid of, right, the storm. But what does it say in verse 41? They were terrified now of Jesus. They're afraid of the storm, but now they're terrified of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? I have no idea what you are facing in life. I have no idea. I have no idea what storms have come your way, are currently you're in the midst of, or will come your way. I have no idea what they are. But only the power of Jesus will make any difference in the midst of that storm because he is the power over the storm. You can be single. You can be suffering with a crushing loneliness in your life right now. You might be wondering, is God ever going to bring anybody into my life? You could put yourself out there. You can be vastly disappointed by the dating apps and continually torturing yourself by being out there. And you're thinking, when will this ever change? 
Maybe it's your marriage, you know, you got married and you were thinking, boy, this is so awesome. I know a number of people who thought, man, I got married. I was going to get married once in life. And now they're living as a single adult again. Other people are in the midst of how my marriage was so great, you know, and now we're struggling. How did it get from there to here? It started with such promise. Now we're struggling. Maybe it's your business. You know, maybe you moved here from California and thought, man, I'm going to start a new business and it took off and everything. And then suddenly, you know, COVID hits and they shut you down. Or maybe it's your kids. Is there any greater joy than holding that baby for the first time you bring them home, right? You know, isn't it awesome that you, you, that whole first year and a half, two years, you spend all your time trying to get them to say their first word, right? You know, say mama, say dada, you know, say I love you. You spend all your time trying to get them to speak their first words. And then, and then eventually you want them to take their first step, right? And they take their first step. And once they're talking and once they're moving, you spend the next 18 years saying, please sit down and be quiet. I don't know what you're facing. But I do know this. You have a blessing that the disciples didn't have. You know how the story ends. See, the disciples here were afraid and then terrified. Just imagine on Sunday, wow, the glory of the king is here. We're going to take over. And then Friday hits. And it's a disaster. You know, over the years, the phrase, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, has taken on a certain uh, a meme in our society. It's originally uh, kind of brought to its, its eloquence by a pastor in San Diego. He's been dead now for about 20, 30 years, by the name of S.M. Lockridge, Okay. And he talked about, it's Friday, but Sunday is coming in your life. And the notion of Sunday is coming is our, our statement of hope. It's our statement of joy. So there's a number of these things over the last 30 years that I've read everybody write. And I said, well, maybe what I ought to do for the first time in my life is I ought to write one myself. So I wrote my own. And um, some people would call this poetry. I think that's being generous and liberal. You know, this is more, more like slam poetry or whatever. But uh, I'm going to read this to you, and I hope that it helps. And um, we're going to get this going, okay? Yeah, there we go. We need a little background there. I love it. Now, you may wonder what it means and why it seems like no one really knows where life goes. It could be overwhelming what the world is telling. If you listen too long, it can steal your song. It seems like everyone is given up because the pain of life with all its strife will cut you like a knife. You long for the glory of another day and the power that comes from those who pray. Just remember how it all played out. On Friday, the disciples felt completely pushed out. It was the worst day ever because death is the end forever. They didn't know Sunday would come. They couldn't see the prophetic crumb that pointed to an empty tomb. It was a new life from a spiritual womb. Because for them, it's Friday. 
Jesus is sweating, disciples sleeping, chief priests are coming, Satan is delighting. But Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The council is conspiring. That chief priest is now accusing. The crowd is vilifying. The disciples are scattering. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. Pilate is considering. The council pleading. The crowd shouting. Crucifixion is happening. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. Peter is denying. The soldiers are beaten. His blood is dripping. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The whip is whipping. The nails are pounding. The cries abounding. But Sunday is coming. It's Friday. The soldiers are gambling, the feet bleeding, the crown is a thornin', but Sunday's a coming. My friend, it feels like Friday. The storm clouds gathering, the earth is quaking, and our Savior is dying. But Sunday is coming. When all hope is lost, life seems a bust, your soul is a crust, the world is winning, the people are sinning, and the devil is grinning. And you may feel like your life is bruising, confusing, losing, and diffusing. Just remember, you can know the shower of glory that comes from the power the power of his cross cannot be lost because the resurrection proves that death will lose. No matter what you face, you have received the grace. For his resurrection can show that you will grow if you only remember that when everybody walked away, you will have the strength to stay because you already know it is the power and the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. There you go. Let's stand for closing prayer. Next Sunday, the most important way to introduce somebody to Jesus is to personally invite them. And we have cards that you could take to your work, your neighbors, and just invite somebody. We're going to have three services on campus. They'll all be online. It'll be an awesome experience, and you'll love inviting them to come with you. So please do that. Lord Jesus, we know that our lives only have value because you, through your power and glory, your death and resurrection, give our lives value. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.